Hello. Welcome to uh, this edition of Probe's new uh, podcast, the Probecast, we're calling it these days. Got a uh, exciting episode up for you today. Really looking forward to having a conversation that should hopefully equip you to think biblically, which is the purpose of Probe Ministries, the ministry uh, producing these episodes. My name is Paul Rutherford. I'll be your host today. I'm a research associate with Probe Ministries. And we're going to be talking about uh, ancient evidence for the existence of Jesus from non-Christian sources in particular. And this is part two of an episode that we have started earlier from part one. And uh, today, Dr. Michael Gleghorn is here with me. Glad to have you here, Michael. Great to be here. Looking forward to, to finishing our conversation. It was really enjoyable last time, but this time I'm looking forward to digging in more because there are a number of sources that really testify to the existence of Jesus and who he was and how that corroborates the biblical accounts that record who Jesus is. Yes, that's right. For our, our new listeners, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Okay. My name is Michael Gleghorn, and I did my master's and doctoral work at Dallas Theological Seminary in systematic and historical theology. I have been with Probe for almost 20 years Ooh. as a research associate teaching and writing for the ministry. I have got a wife and two children. Thanks, Michael. Obviously, you have uh, a lot of pedigree and education behind you and ministry experience, and so um, a lot of what you're going to share with us today comes out of that, comes out of your research, comes out of your experience. In fact, I know that this is uh, one of our more popular articles uh, that's on our website, which now that I've brought it up, I may as well plug. If you haven't been to our website, probe.org, that's P-R-O-B-E dot O-R-G, check it out for more information on on what we're going to cover today and other questions. If you have other questions about non-Christian sources or non-Christian evidences, or arguments for God, for Christianity, uh, check out the website. There's lots of resources over there at the website. So, Michael, let's uh, let's recap, Dr. Gleghorn. Uh, last time we set up, we, we were going to discuss, what, five sources yes. of evidence that are non-Christian. Okay? Yes. And then last time, we talked about Pliny the Younger. Is that right? Yes. And we talked about Tacitus. Yes. Right, okay. So, we're not going to talk about them in depth today, but can you at least review and, and tell us who's Pliny the Younger and who is Tacitus? Yes, Tacitus was a Roman historian who was writing in the early 2nd century. The Annals of Tacitus okay. were published in probably around 115 AD. So, this would be a very early Roman pagan historian who mentions Jesus and early Christians, particularly with respect to the fire that burned down Rome that many people thought that Nero had set and then yes. persecuted the Christians for. Yes. The second source, Pliny the Younger, was a Roman governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor in the early 2nd century, and he also mentions the Christians in a letter to the Emperor Trajan that he wrote in the early 2nd century, seeking mm. his advice on, you know, what do I do with these people, particularly if they do confess to being Christians? Do I, what exactly, what sort of line should I take with them? And so, he was wanting advice from the Emperor on how to best deal with these people. Thank you for that brief recap of what we talked about last time. For you who are listening at home or in your car or wherever you are, um, if you want to hear more about that and uh, what those uh, historical sources testify to and how that is consistent with the biblical account, uh, you want to check out our previous episode on that, um, which is just Ancient Evidence for Jesus from Non-Christian Sources, Part 1, and you're listening to Part 2 right now. And so we're going to uh, cap off and conclude and summarize that conversation. So what are we going to talk about today, Dr. Leghorn? 
Well, today we want to talk about three additional sources. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, is really writing at a period in time that would be roughly contemporary with the time that many people believe the Gospel of John was written. Okay. So he would be a contemporary non-Christian Jewish source that mentions not only Jesus, but mentions James, uh, one of Jesus' brothers, and also mentions John the Baptist uh, in his writings in the Antiquities. We'll also talk about the Babylonian Talmud, and although references to Jesus in the Babylonian Talmud are highly disputed as far as what's actually going on there okay. uh, among the references, we'll pick one in particular that is very much interested mm. uh, scholars and talk about that and what implications that might have for Jesus. And then finally, a Greek satirist in the second century named Lucian okay. um, will also mention briefly some of what he has to say about Jesus and the early Christians. All right, so we're going to talk about Josephus, who's probably one of the most famous of the sources we're talking about. Definitely a source I'm already somewhat familiar with. The Babylonian Talmud and a Greek satirist, Lucian. Yes. Okay, great. So that's what's up on deck. So let's start with Josephus, right? It sounds like there's maybe the most to say about Josephus or what he has recorded is maybe of the most interest or recorded the most. So what does he have to say about Jesus? Josephus, as I said before, is a first century Jewish historian. And in his Antiquities of the Jews, which basically traces Jewish history from creation up until the time that Josephus himself is writing in the first century, he mentions various characters that are also mentioned in the New Testament. For instance, uh, and when I say characters, I don't mean obviously fictional characters, but just persons that are also mentioned in the People New Testament. People recorded in the scriptures, yes. So he mentions John the Baptist, for instance. Okay. Uh, he mentions James, the brother of Jesus, and the martyrdom of James. And then he also mentions Jesus. The reference to James, to just skip over the reference to John the Baptist, the reference to James uh, occurs second in the Antiquities and basically talks about the death of James. And I'll just read a portion from Josephus to give listeners an idea of kind of what's being said here. Sounds great. He's referring to a person named Ananus or Ananias who had been given the high priesthood and uh, talking about his disposition to uh, exercise authority in this particular issue. And, and he goes on to say this. He says, Festus, who's also mentioned in the New Testament, yeah. uh, Festus was now dead and Albinus was put upon the road. Uh, so he's traveling in that direction. So he, referring to Ananus or Ananias, assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. So James, the brother of Jesus, who he says was called Christ, and some others. He brings before him some others, some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. This is a reference to the death of James, the brother of Jesus, whom Josephus mentions was called Christ. And so here in this reference to the martyrdom of James, you've also got a reference to him being the brother of Jesus, which is consistent with what we read in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And he refers to Jesus as one who was called Christ. So he does not himself say that Jesus was the Christ, but right. he says that he was called Christ by 
apparently some of his early followers. So that would be the one reference to Jesus, which was the less interesting of the two. The second reference is the one that has generated by far the most attention as far as references to Jesus outside of the New Testament. Second, in terms of what we're talking about here, although it is very, very important. I'll, I'll read the reference. It's going to make Josephus sound like a Christian. Okay. We'll come back and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail once okay. I've given Foot- listeners an idea of what the reference is. Footnoted. Right. We'll get back to him sounding like a Christian. Okay. Yeah. And so this is what we can read in Josephus. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are not extinct at this day. Just a superficial look at that passage, you'd be like, well, my goodness, Josephus sounds like a Christian. Yeah. I mean, he refers to Jesus as a wise man, but then he parenthetically says, if it be lawful to call him a man. As if he were not a man, like deity. As if he were maybe more than just a human being. Yeah. He explicitly says, just point blank, he says, he was the Christ. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, he says, uh, after his death, that Jesus appeared to them alive again the third day, which would be a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. What we want to know is, okay, so what's what's going on here? We have testimony from an early church father named Origen, who says that Josephus was not a Christian. And yet this passage makes him sound like a Christian. And so there have been different scholarly views on kind of what's going on here with Uh Josephus. How are we to understand this? Yes, good question. And so you've had basically three different views. You have had those (coughs) who have wanted to say that the entire passage as it is, as I've read it, is authentic. It's from Josephus, and that's just the end of the story, which would make Josephus sound like a Christian. Others have completely rejected the passage and said, no, this wasn't originally in Josephus at all, and we shouldn't accept it as such. But the majority view, the view that by far the majority of scholars have held in our present day, is that the core of this passage goes back to Josephus. It is authentically Josephus, and he has written the core of this, but that there have been some later Christian additions, or what are called interpolations, additions to the passage that have been made by later Christian copyists, probably. Yep. And that's what goes to make Josephus sound like a Christian. The testifying that he was the Christ. Yes, because to take that explicit affirmation, that doesn't gel very well with what he said in the other passage concerning the martyrdom of James. When he mentions Jesus, he says, who was called Christ, mm. or who some have even translated, you know, the so-called Christ. Because there's distance there. Not that he's saying he's the Christ, but he's just admitting others call him the Christ. Yes, that as yeah. an historian, he's admitting that, you know, mm-hmm. other people refer to him as the Christ, but Josephus isn't saying that himself. Whereas in this passage, there's just this explicit affirmation, he was the Christ, yes, which makes Josephus sound like 
he is affirming this of Jesus, that <laughs> yes. he was the Christ or the Messiah. Um, and yet in the other passage concerning the martyrdom of James, he just says he was called the Christ by some of his followers or by his followers, I guess I should say. You know, there have been different ways in which scholars have thought about this passage. Some might say, okay, the core of the passage is authentically Josephus. And we can probably eliminate, you know, there's good reason to believe that we can eliminate the objectionable passages um, or elements of the passage. And then we would have likely what Josephus originally wrote. Okay. If we were to take out the phrase, if it be lawful to call him a man, which makes Jesus sound like he was more than human. Mm -hmm. uh, we take out that. We take out the explicit affirmation, he was the Christ. He was the Christ, yeah. Take that out. And then we take out the reference to the resurrection of Jesus, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets have okay. foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. If we take out those objectionable passages or those questionable elements, yes. then we would have a passage that states this. And so this is the core that most yeah, what's people... What's left if yeah, we this, take out that? We strike so, all the things that are in contest and question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll take out that and I'll read this to you with those parts eliminated. And then this would be what many would regard as the core of what Josephus originally wrote. And so it would read like this. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. In the tribe of Christians, so named after him, are not extinct at this day. Now there we've taken out all the objectionable features mm -hmm. or questionable features of the passage. And what we're left with is still a lot of information yes. about Jesus written by a Jewish historian, a very qualified Jewish historian in the first century at about the same time that the Gospel of John is being written yes. that confirms and corroborates much of what the New Testament has to tell us. Wow. There's a lot left there. There's a, there's a lot that's very consistent with what's recorded in the New Testament. Yes. Yeah. And as I say, this would be the majority view among scholars that, that this passage does go back to Josephus and that there have been some Christian additions, which once those are removed, we would have, in essence, probably what Josephus originally wrote. And so he does explicitly mention Jesus. He says he was a wise man. Nothing objectionable about a Jewish historian saying that. I mean, that he was widely regarded as a wise man. Mm -hmm. He was a doer of wonderful works. Again, that might sound surprising that people would believe that Josephus wrote that, but this is consistent with his language and so forth, and isn't something that would be objectionable because other people were regarded as miracle workers in the ancient world. And yes. so for Josephus to say this about Jesus, who was widely regarded as a miracle worker, there wouldn't be anything objectionable about that. Okay. A teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure. Uh, one of the reasons why this would be regarded as authentically Josephus rather than a Christian copyist is because most Christians had kind of a low regard for the idea of pleasure. You know, that was associated with hedonism mm. and so forth. And so this would be a more consistent way for Josephus to express the matter. Uh, a teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure. That would be a way that Josephus would express things. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. That's something that was just common knowledge. 
And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And that would be evident to Josephus because you've still got Christian people that are followers of Jesus, whom they regard to be the Messiah or mm -hmm. the Christ. And then he ends by saying, in the tribe of Christians, again, notice this phraseology of the tribe of Christians. That's not the way a Christian would mm. say this, but no. that's the way Josephus Yeah, no, that's good. That, that authenticates that he's not Christian. Yeah, so the, the tribe of Christians, so named from him, so it's we derive our name as Christians from Jesus the Christ, mm -hmm. are not extinct at this day. And that, again, would just be something that would be common knowledge. The Christians are still here among us. They're still followers of this man who was crucified at the time of Pontius Pilate, and yet they continued to follow him as, you know, believing that he was the Christ. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be in any way objectionable for Josephus to have written that. Now, having said all that, there's one other thing that we need to mention here, and that is, in 1971, a scholar named Shlomo Pines published a study on this passage, what's called the, what I just read to you there, this passage from Josephus concerning Jesus, is referred to as the Testimonium Flavianum, the, the testimony of Flavius Josephus, basically. Okay. And this survives in a slightly different version in a 10th century Arabic manuscript. Okay. So, so yeah, it's a 10th century Arabic manuscript, which, because of its history and being in Arabic, many people say is much less likely to have been doctored by Christian copyists. This seems to have survived in a different community. And the passage is interesting because it lacks most of the questionable elements that many scholars believe to be later Christian editions. So this passage doesn't include them. Because of that, some people have thought, and Shlomo Pines and David Flusser uh, stated that it's even plausible that none of the arguments against Josephus writing these words, the original words, even applies to the Arabic text, especially since the latter text would have had less chance of being censored by the church. That, according to Gary Habermas in his book, The Historical Jesus. And so, let me read this passage. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Now, so far, that sounds very similar, and none of the objectionable elements are there. The passage then continues concerning his disciples. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Interesting. Now, of course, this is just his disciples reporting this. And again, that is something his disciples did. So Josephus, if he wrote this, would just be reporting on this fact, but it would be testimony to the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And then it says this, Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, Hmm. Notice that the term perhaps is used there. He was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have written wonders or recounted wonders. Hmm. Now, that last phrase, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders, if Josephus did write that, that wouldn't have to be a reference to Jesus, as if they, the prophets have recounted wonders concerning Jesus, but just that concerning the Messiah, the prophets oh. have recounted wonders, mm -hmm. and the Christians believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm. But Josephus, is, if he wrote this, if this is authentic, would be saying he was perhaps the Messiah 
and then concerning this figure, the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So again, there would be ways of dealing with this passage that wouldn't be objectionable for Josephus, a Jewish historian, to have written this and would give us even more information about Jesus in early Christianity than we would have from that original version with the questionable elements deleted. Mm -hmm. um, so again, that's, that's again part of a broader scholarly discussion, and we won't try to resolve that issue today. But, yes, let's not. But just recognizing that whichever version we go with and taking away the objectionable elements, you still have a lot of important historical information from a non-Christian Jewish historian writing in the first century about Jesus and the early Christians. Yeah, wow, that's fantastic. You know, and I couldn't have couldn't have summarized that better myself. <laughs> so <laughs> these are some really interesting things that historically that were contributed by Josephus. And, and again, the fact that he was Jewish, the fact that he had no real vested interest himself in recording these things, really just again testifies to the authenticity, or at least to the potential authenticity. Of his recordings, so that's that's partly what makes this so interesting, and that's really great. So we have more than just Josephus, also, right? We've also got the Babylonian Talmud. Yes, yeah, and the Babylonian Talmud. This gets us into literature that was compiled between roughly seventy and five hundred A.D. Although, according to scholars that I've read, in particular Gary Habermas, says that this was done in different periods, and so. All things being equal, one would assume that the earlier periods, and here we're talking that mention Jesus, or a figure that might be Jesus, the earlier periods of that collecting of materials would all things consider more likely be historically reliable than later periods in which, you know, legendary material could have been more likely to enter into the picture as time I, went on. Mm -hmm. So all things considered, the earlier period, the better the information is likely to be. And so there is a passage scholars have dated in that early period that would conclude around AD 200. So the end of the second century, beginning of the third century. Yeah. Well, okay. But before we go any further, would you just tell us, especially for the benefit of our listener, what is the Babylonian Talmud? The <laughs> Babylonian Talmud, yeah, it's a collection of Jewish writings. The Talmud consists of what's called both the Mishnah and the Gemara. Okay. These were rabbinic writings that were put together beginning as early as AD 70 mm -hmm. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jewish people outside of their homeland. So beginning that earlier, at least traditions that might, you know, be going back to that time, well, even, even earlier historically. Sure. Uh, but were compiled beginning around AD 70 to around AD 500, so over that period of time. And so all things being equal, as I said, the, the earlier the references when we're talking about some a figure like Jesus, the earlier in time that these passages might be dated to, mm -hmm. the more historically reliable one would assume them to be. Sure. No, that was very helpful. Thanks. Please continue. What's, what's of interest that's recorded in uh, the Babylonian Talmud that testifies to the existence of Jesus and his person and, and who he was as a historical figure? So here we've got... Uh, several potential references okay. to Jesus. In the Babylonian Talmud, you have a figure that is referred to as Yeshu. Some of these references are almost certainly not to Jesus. 
they could plausibly be dated to a time period that would not be consistent with when Jesus lived, and there would be other reasons to call them into question. But some of them could be references to Jesus. Now, people might wonder, well, okay, the name that you mentioned is Yeshu, and so how does that relate to Jesus? And Yeshu or Yeshua would just be the Hebrew name for Jesus. So this wouldn't be problematic that this name could be used of Jesus. And there is in the Babylonian Talmud, in what's called Sanhedrin 43a, the reference, a passage that could very well be speaking about the Jesus of the New Testament. And it reads like this, and you'll see the significance of this as I read this. It says, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For forty days before the execution took place, a herald cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. That's a slightly edited version of what's written in the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a. Now, when we read this, immediately people might have questions because, you know, it begins by saying, On the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. Oh, hanged, right. The biblical account records him being crucified. Yeah. It's and a so, different manner of execution. Yeah, and so yes. people might be wondering, well, what's going on here? I mean, why well, think that this refers to Jesus if it talks about him being hanged? And so it's important to remember for our listeners that here the reference to Yeshu being hanged isn't referring to something like in the Old West, you know, where a person was hanged with a rope by the neck until dead. Yeah. Um, that what's going on here is actually perfectly consistent with the idea of Jesus being crucified. And in fact, we actually have biblical passages that use this exact same terminology. For instance, in Galatians 3.13, we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, quote, and here he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Mm. And so here Paul is referring to the death of Jesus who was crucified on a Roman cross, but using this terminology, going back to Deuteronomy, uh, of being hanged. Uh, similarly, in Luke twenty three thirty nine, in the Gospel of Luke, we read about the two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. So Jesus is crucified with one criminal on either side of him. And it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so here Luke talks about this criminal being hanged. And so this terminology would be perfectly consistent with crucifixion. Mm. So that would be the first thing to bear in mind is that that's consistent with Jesus being crucified if this is a you know, an actual reference of some kind to uh, the Jesus of the New Testament. Then you've also got this strange account. It says, for 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth crying out, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. And so we might be wondering about this. Well, you know, again, Jesus wasn't stoned. Mm -hmm. uh, he was crucified. Again, another manner of death seems inconsistent. New Testament accounts, yeah. Yeah. There it does say that on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged, which would be a way of referring to him being crucified. And so this idea of him being stoned, which is just, you know, kind of a threat. It says for 40 days before the execution took place, this herald is crying out that he's going forth to be stoned 
because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So what that could be indicative of is that this was what the Jewish religious leaders were planning to do. I mean, that would be the common Jewish method of execution, unlike you know the Roman method of crucifixion. Mm -hmm. For Jews, it would be more common for them to stone someone like this. And so that could indicate what the Jewish religious leaders were planning to do. Interesting. But then Roman involvement changed their plans. Yeah. And so he ended up being crucified or hanged yeah. rather than stoned. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what I hear you talking about here in, in what is recorded in the Babylonian Talmud about Jesus is that he was executed. It seems clear regardless of what you're in which passage you're looking at or the way that it's recorded, whether it records that someone named Jesus was hanged or whether he was stoned. You know, if you look at both of those, I see similarities there that they're both saying that this person was executed. This person died yeah, and, at the hands of others. Yeah, and in the Babylonian Talmud, it does <coughs> say that, you know, that he was hanged. So that would be consistent with the fact that Jesus was crucified, if this is you know, a reference to Jesus. And the reference, the idea of him being stoned, is just what this herald, you know, according to the Babylonian Talmud, is crying out for 40 days prior to his execution, that they're threatening to stone him for practicing sorcery and enticing Israel to apostasy. But that's not what ended up happening. Now, what actually ended up happening is that he was hanged or crucified. No, I see what you're saying. That's good. That's interesting. And now the final thing I, I think that it would be important to note is that the way this passage concludes is that he's threatened with being stoned, although he ends up being hanged, but he's threatened with being stoned. And why? Well, because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Now, there people might be like, well, I mean, that doesn't fit in with Jesus at all. But one thing to remember is that this is testimony, if it does refer to the Jesus of the New Testament. This is testimony that is coming from Jesus' enemies, so to speak. I mean, mm -hmm. people that don't accept Jesus as nope. the Christ, that don't believe he's the Messiah, that right. believe that he is a traitor to Israel, that he was a false prophet, you know, that he wasn't a true teacher of God. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be surprised that they describe Jesus in less than glamorous terms and yeah. believe that he was a sorcerer and heretic. The important thing, I think, to note is that if we read between the lines, recognizing that this testimony comes from Jesus' enemies, we can still see how his enemies could regard him as one practicing sorcery. That would be very consistent with the miracles attributed to Jesus in the mm -hmm. New Testament and his exorcisms mm -hmm. in particular. This is coming from Jesus' enemies. We can understand why it would be an unflattering way of referring to Jesus, and yet reading between the lines, we can see that this would historically corroborate the New Testament account of Jesus' miracle work mm -hmm. and his exorcisms, mm -hmm. and that they were just describing these powerful and miraculous works and exorcisms to sorcery or to the dark side rather than to the power of God. Mm -hmm. And it would be like in the New Testament when the Jewish religious leaders say that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul the mm -hmm. ruler of the demons. They're not denying that he's casting out these demons. They're not denying that he's performing these miracles. Not they're just wanting the exorcism, yeah. They're just wanting to attribute it to the, the dark side mm -hmm. rather than to the power of God. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. And so in the same with, you know, him enticing Israel to apostasy, they regarded Jesus as a false teacher. But in the New Testament also we find testimony to Jesus' very powerful teaching ministry that people didn't just listen to him apathetically. I mean, they were moved and stirred. And 
you know, amazed at his teaching. Mm-hmm. And so this would be, again, kind of an indirect reference to Jesus' powerful teaching ministry and the powerful impact that his teaching ministry had on people. Yeah. It's just that they're wanting to say that he's leading Israel astray, whereas the early Christians, many of whom, indeed, the earliest Christians were all Jews and Gentiles were the latecomers to this right. new faith. But they would have said that, no, he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's right. sent from God. Yeah. And that's explained by the difference in perspective and, and that indicates is indicative of the source from which it's coming. So so we're getting on. We're getting a little bit farther time here. And I know you still have another source you wanted to cover. Maybe yes. even just briefly, right? So tell us more about this other third source, this third non-Christian source who is Greek. So we're switching over. We've just talked about two Jewish sources between Josephus and the Jewish historian and the Babylonian Talmud, another Jewish source. So tell us about this Greek source and how it testifies to the New Testament accounts of Jesus. Yeah, Lucian is very interesting. He was a Greek satirist. Uh, he's not a Christian, obviously. Okay, a satirist. Um, What's yes. a satirist? Um, he's, he's somebody that basically is poking fun at others, you know, kind of using One humor. One satire? Yes. Okay, yeah. making fun of? Okay. So he's using humor to okay. uh, make fun of the Christians. Thanks for clarifying. And so I'll read this passage to you and, and understand, you know, from that context that uh, Lucian is a satirist. And so this is the way he describes the Christians. He says, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. So that's what <laughs> uh, that's what Lucian has to say, and he you know says it in a rather uh, humorous and comical way. It's pretty thick. Yeah, so he's laying it on very thick. And yet, again, when you read between the lines, you can see yes. that he does provide a lot of valuable information about the early Christians. A and lot. Their, and their, their beliefs. beliefs. And what the practices, yeah. So... Going back, I mean, the first thing he says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. So he refers to the Christians actually worshiping this historical human figure, Jesus of Nazareth. Testifies to his humanity. Testifies to his humanity and testifies to the fact that the Christians worship this historical figure that actually lived on earth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, would be dissimilar in that respect from what one would typically think of as a deity. And yet the Christians are worshiping this person. He goes on to refer to him as the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. The so, crucifixion. So Lucian bears testimony to the crucifixion of That's Jesus. Big. Yeah. That's big. So that would be another important element that Lucian provides for us. He goes on to say, you see these misguided creatures, he sees them as misguided, start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time. Uh, so believing, you know, in light of Jesus' teaching in the afterlife, that through faith in Christ that they receive eternal life so that they're immortal, which explains their contempt of death 
and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. So this, Lucian recognizes that this is well known, that these Christians have a contempt of death and a voluntary self-devotion to one another. They're not afraid to go into the arena and give their lives for their faith in Christ, oftentimes. And this was regarded as common knowledge in that because they believe that they're immortal, that they've got eternal life. He continues, and then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, referring to Jesus, that they are all brothers. You know, this idea of the family of God, they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece. You know, it would be inconsistent for a Christian to believe in and worship Jesus and also worship the gods of Greece. Mm -hmm. um, that this was something that, no, they, they had exclusive allegiance to Jesus. Yes. Um, so they denied the gods of Greece, worship the crucified sage, and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, early on he says that they worship this man, this historical person. And yet, the fact that they deny the gods of Greece in order to worship Jesus would also be indicative of their belief that Jesus was more than just a human person from history, mm -hmm. but that is actually divine himself. Mm -hmm. So this would be Christian testimony as well to the belief in the deity of Christ, both the humanity of Christ and the deity yes. of Christ, because they clearly believed him to be one who was more worthy of their worship than the gods of Greece, that he was a greater god than any Greece had to offer. Mm. So again, this is, this is testimony from a Greek satirist that gives us a lot of information about the early Christians and about Jesus that would be very consistent with what we read in the New Testament. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's very interesting. I really appreciate how Lucian's perspective uh, is so different than the two Jewish sources you just mentioned before, Josephus and, and the Talmud. And maybe that's the uh, effects of uh, Western culture being so influenced by Greek culture that I read from that satirist and like, oh yeah, no, I resonate with a lot of that. Also interesting cultural commentary, how different cultures are different and how they perceive even the same person, the same source, the same Jewish rabbi, Jesus, in different ways. Yes, yeah, you really do have different, I mean, even though these are all non-Christian sources, it's like the testimony from Josephus seems to be very responsible, once we eliminate the questionable elements, historically responsible. Very concerned with getting the facts right. Historically responsible, yeah, and and either neutral to maybe even slightly positive about Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, the Babylonian Talmud seems to be clearly hostile <laughs> yes, toward Jesus very clearly and hostile. not appreciate him at all. No, and then Lucian is sees this is all just a big joke. This is something <laughs> yes. to make fun of. And, yeah, he seems neither here nor there. He and it's funny is rather you know kind of ludicrous and you know yeah. just stupid and only you know. Mm -hmm simple-minded people could possibly believe such nonsense right right yeah no this is this has been great you know and i think it's probably to my discredit that i haven't mentioned this before but but the significance of non-christian historical sources testifying to f facts in history that are consistent with the new testament accounts again itself testifies to the reliability of the New Testament. And that's a big deal because I know so many people have heard from critics, from the new atheists, that the Bible's full of errors, it's full of holes, you can't trust it, it claims to be God's truth, but because there are errors in it, it probably isn't from God. But that's why this conversation today is so important, because there are sources in history, 
some of whom, like we've just talked about, are non-Christian, but what they record about history is consistent with the biblical account, and that gives credence to the authenticity and the reliability of the scriptures that we hold in our hands today. Yeah, it's it's just another way of, of corroborating what the New Testament has to say and pointing to the fact that there are good, early, ancient sources from, you know, Roman authors, a Greek author, mm -hmm. Jewish authors, and these are only the ones that we've mentioned in these programs. Yeah. Uh, there are others as well, but that give testimony to Jesus and early Christianity, which when read carefully and, you know, reading between the lines and some of the hostile sources and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, does bear remarkable witness to much of the outline of what we read about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament mm -hmm. and the early Christians as well. Yeah, great. So I know you have a, a concluding thought, a final thought. Would yeah, you like to and share so that with us? yeah, two things. Um, first of all, just to summarize what we've in both the first and the second podcast, let me say this: if we were to try to tie all this together and think, well, you know, what can we learn about Jesus and the early Christians from these ancient non-Christian sources? What I'd like to say is this: first, both Josephus and Lucian indicate that Jesus was regarded as wise. Both bear testimony to that. Okay. Second, Pliny, the Talmud, and Lucian imply he was a powerful and revered teacher, also consistent with the New Testament's representation. Third, both Josephus and the Talmud indicate he performed miraculous feats or wonderful works. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that he was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this occurred under Pontius Pilate, and the Talmud declares it happened on the eve of Passover. Fifth, there are possible references to the Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection in both Tacitus and Josephus. Sixth, Josephus records that Jesus' followers believed he was the Christ or Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worshipped Jesus as God. I mean, when you summarize it all like that and pull it all together, mm -hmm. you realize that this really does bear a substantial testimony from ancient non-Christian sources to what the New Testament has to say about Jesus and early Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really powerful witness. Would you mind reading those again to us? And they're one through six, right? Yeah. But without the references and just the descriptions, right? What started off with that he was a wise and powerful teacher. Yeah, so first, that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, that he was a powerful and revered teacher. Third, that he performed miraculous feats. Fourth, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and on the eve of Passover, according to the Talmud. Fifth, the Christians believed in Jesus' resurrection, and sixth, they believed that he was the Christ or the Messiah, and finally, that they worshipped him as God. No, that's good. Thank you. When you read it like that, that really puts the power to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I thank you for indulging my slow mind. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. And I guess the, where I would want to conclude is to say that the value of this evidence, I think, is really to corroborate what we read in the New Testament. We began by talking about this in our first podcast, but it's important, I think, to end here as well by pointing out that, although many people don't realize it, actually our earliest and best evidence for Jesus is found in the New Testament itself. That's big. 
Yeah, the, the earliest and best historical evidence for Jesus is in the New Testament documents themselves. And as far as the earliest and best substantial biographical information about Jesus that, that goes into detail about you know his life and ministry and so forth, that information would be found in the New Testament Gospels. Our earliest and best information about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. is found in the New Testament Gospels. And so okay. these are actually our earliest and best historical sources. These non-Christian sources that we've mentioned are later and are not as great value as the New Testament itself, yep. but they do corroborate from non-Christian sources what the New Testament has to say. Yeah. There's a lot of significance there, Dr. Gleghorn, that you're pointing out, and I appreciate you uh, pointing that out and, and really doing my job for me as the host of the program. <laughs> I'll also add and point out that I think, especially in apologetic circles, a lot of us apologetic weenies, myself included, will get excited about sources that are non-Christian that, as you say, corroborate the witness in the New Testament, as recorded in the New Testament. And what's exciting about it as an apologist is, ooh, hey, here's a source that's, you know, disinterested or not interested, or, you know, you can, so to speak, you can throw the Bible out and, hey, you know, regardless of the Bible, what do these non-Christian sources say? And so there can be a lot of hype or excitement or energy around those types of sources. And, and to a large degree, I think that's part of the interest in in this work, right? And that's part of the, I think, this, the sizzle and the interest of this conversation. And that's all legitimate, and that's fine, as long as we're also admitting what you just said, which is that the earliest and best sources of Jesus' life and ministry are in the Gospels. And the best source of Christianity and the best, earliest, most accurate, historically accurate accounts are in the New Testament. And so, really what I hear you saying is, hey, we have these non-Christian sources which are testifying to who Jesus is, consistent with what's required in the New Testament. But if you're just going to ask a general question, hey, where's the best source to go if you want to know about Jesus and who he is, you're going to go back to the New Testament. And that would be agreed by virtually everybody. I mean, even scholars that don't believe that the New Testament is a divinely inspired document, that they don't Uh believe that this is the Word of God or anything, and hence would reject portions of you know, accounts in the Gospels, like concerning the miracles of Jesus or what have you, they might, you know, object to that. Nonetheless, they would still recognize these are our earliest and best historical sources of information about Jesus. And what they might want to do is just kind of like what we did with Josephus. They would want to remove elements that they regard as objectionable or maybe non-historical. But for the Christian, these are our earliest and best historical sources, and we've got other reasons for believing them to be divinely inspired as well. Yeah, that's great. You know, Dr. Gleghorn, this has been a really fantastic conversation, again, on really in the broader scope of the reliability of Scripture. And for you who's listening, if you have doubts about your faith or doubts about um, the Bible, I hope this just encourages you in the historical accuracy of the book that you hold in your hands, that it has been faithfully transmitted, that it is divinely inspired, and that it is it is accurate and you can trust it. And that's for sure the, the point that we want to drive home today. And Dr. Gleghorn, I thank you for jumping on this podcast with me. I think this has been a really fun conversation to talk about history and evidence and, and Jesus in the New Testament. I always enjoy getting to record these with you. I've really enjoyed it today. And uh, thanks for jumping on with me. Well, thanks for having me.